Hey there, I'm Amy Walter, co-host of The Takeaway. In the Politics Brief podcast, you'll hear the best segments from all the different WNYC shows covering the 2018 elections. It's the sharpest, most timely talk, analysis, and original reporting from shows like On the Media, The Brian Lehrer Show, and of course, The Takeaway. Also, from the WNYC newsroom, which is tracking key races in New York and New Jersey. The stakes are high, and we want you to have the information you need. It's what we do. Welcome to Politics Brief from WNYC. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. And of course, this New York primary is two months ahead of the general election in November. Fingers crossed for tomorrow that there's no repeat of the great Brooklyn voter purge of 2016 scandal that marred that year's New York primary voting. That purge seemed to be caused by the Board of Elections incompetence. But my next guest finds more deliberate strategies at play to prevent low-income citizens of color, in particular, from exercising their right to vote and says we're at a crisis point. Carol Anderson is a professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author of the award-winning book, White Rage. Her new book is One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy, and it brings her back to the show. Welcome back, Professor Anderson. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Brian. You opened the book by talking about the results in 2016 when African-Americans showed up at the polls in lower numbers than in previous elections. And you make the case that that was as much about deliberate efforts to suppress their votes as because of what the media has talked about a lot more, which is a lack of enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton compared to Barack Obama. So was the lower turnout primarily in states with impediments to voting? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can, in fact, see that in states that had enacted voter suppression laws, those are the states that flipped from blue to to Trump. Um, And those voter suppression laws were very targeted hits. Um, And so if we think of those votes, uh, those states generally as in the South, Texas, North Carolina, are they also Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania? Yes, they absolutely are. And that is because um, the the drive for this latest wave of voter suppression have been the Republicans. And so where you are seeing Republican governments, where the legislature and the governor are both Republicans, that's where you're seeing the implementation of a lot of these horrific laws. Your review in the book, The History of anti-black voter suppression that dates from Reconstruction, things like poll taxes and literacy tests that people know if they know history, Mm -hmm. and how the 1965 Voting Rights Act finally resulted in an end to many of those things. And yet something has changed back after the Supreme Court decision that many see as eviscerating that law. Remind us of that. Yeah, and that that evisceration was the Shelby County v. Holder decision in 2013 by the U.S. Supreme Court, where in a 5-4 decision written by Chief Justice John Roberts, he argued that the Voting Rights Act was no longer necessary because of the rampant racism that had required the Voting Rights Act in the first place was no longer active in the United States. He said that the law was basically calcified because so few districts have been bailed out of the uh, out of the preclearance uh, provisions of the of the Voting Rights Act. And so one thing that's changed um, is that since a Democratic president LBJ pushed through the Voting Rights Act, the Republicans rather than the Southern Democrats 
became the, the, the party resisting expansion of voting access. Absolutely, because what you had with the Southern strategy is you had those Southern Democrats being wooed into the party, uh, particularly in 1968 and, and solidified in 1980, first by Nixon and then by Reagan. And so it just took that kind of virulent white supremacy that operated in policy-wise in the Democratic Party and moved it into the Republican Party. Listeners, we can take your phone calls for Professor Carol Anderson. Have you or your loved ones in other states run up against what you would call voter suppression? Or do you have a question about how it works or what can be done? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Emory University Professor Carol Anderson here with her new book, One Person, No Vote how voter suppression is destroying our democracy, and, um, and that's what we're talking about. Um, let's go through, as you do in the book, a few of the major tactics. Voter ID laws, very controversial. People will make the case that it's just common sense to make sure people can identify themselves before they vote. Um, another one is voting roll purges, and they get less publicity. So talk about voting poll Purge, voting roll purges. Yeah, they get a lot less publicity, but they're absolutely lethal because what they do is they systematically just remove people who have already been registered to vote. The way that it works is the way that it is supposed to work is that if you have moved, if you have died and you haven't re-registered where you're supposed to be, then you get removed after being notified. But what these secretaries of state have done has gone immediately to um, you haven't voted in a while in a federal election. Although not voting is your constitutional right, and then you are removed. There's also a program called Crosscheck, which is headed up by Chris Kobach out of Kansas. And what Crosscheck is supposed to do is to catch people who are registered to vote in two different states at least and remove them from the voting rolls because double voting would skew an election. And I think we have a caller on that Kansas situation, coincidentally. So let's take her right now. Maria in Morningside Heights. You're on WNYC. Hi, Maria. Hi. Yes, I wanted to alert listeners to and, and your guests to the fact that there's a class action suit ongoing against interstate cross-checks. But it can only go forward of people whose votes were suppressed in 2016 or any other election after or the whole time cross-checks been in place, the actual people who were given provisional ballots because their name was similar to somebody three states away, for instance, that's how cross-check works, um, they have to come forward and join the class. Um, I was hoping voters in general could, but that's, I've spoken to the, the lawyer who's overseeing this, and that's what she has said. So I just wanted to let people know they can join this class action suit. Maria, thank you very much. Are you familiar with that, Professor Anderson? I'm not familiar with the lawsuit, but I understand how cross-check works is that it's supposed to verify on a series of parameters, first name, last name, et cetera, et cetera. But what they really do is just really perseverate on that last name. And given that minorities have our the most common names are out of the 85 out of the top 100 most common names in America are overpopulated by minorities. What it does is it then targets minority voters. And so 14% of African-American voters have been removed, purged from the rolls via crosscheck. When we continue in a minute, we're going to play a mind-blowing clip from 1980 uh, in which an activist 
um, for the conservative groups, uh, or co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, explicitly says that their power goes up as the voting population goes down, and we'll take it from there as we continue with Carol Anderson and your calls. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. Brian Lehrer on WNYC with Carol Anderson, professor of African-American studies at Emory University and the author now of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying our democracy. Before we play that clip from 1980 that I mentioned before the break, President Trump was elected without winning the popular vote, the second time that has happened in recent history. Of course, George W. Bush won that way in 2000 once Florida's electoral votes were given to him. You see a through line between the two results, but not just what happened in Florida, also in Missouri and particularly voting in St. Louis, and especially the now what we think of as Trumpian idea that widespread voter fraud needed to be addressed. Give us some of that backstory. Yeah, so some of that backstory with St. Louis is that the board, St. Louis Board of Elections had illegally purged almost 50,000 voters who were primarily in Democratic precincts, purged them from the voter rolls, and didn't inform them. So this is a clearly illegal purge. People came to the uh, voting precinct to vote, found out they weren't on the rolls, but the poll workers didn't have any way to verify it. They couldn't call in because the lines were jammed. People were sent downtown to the Board of Elections, left there for hours trying to figure it out. The polls are getting ready to close. Democrats get a court order to keep the polls open for three additional hours to, to deal with this backlog. Republicans came back and immediately had a court shut down the polls within 45 minutes, hollering that this was about massive voter fraud. Mm. And in case anyone is in doubt that the goal of greater voter access is universal, here's an old clip from 1980 of conservative activist Paul Weirich, co-founder of the Heritage Foundation, Moral Majority, and other groups in a speech that we think is before a Christian right audience in Dallas, uh, but he speaks very candidly to this group in 1980. Now many of our Christians have what I call the goo-goo syndrome, good government. They want everybody to vote. I don't want everybody to vote. Elections are not won by a majority of people. They never have been from the beginning of our country, and they are not now. As a matter of fact, our leverage in the elections quite candidly goes up as the voting populace goes down. Gasp. Yes. Uh, that, that was is, candid. That was candid, and that's the blueprint. That's the blueprint. Uh, let's take another phone call. Tiffany in Middletown. You're on WNYC with Carol Anderson. Hi, Tiffany. Hi, thank you for taking my call. Sure. I just wanted to find out if there was any, if, if it had been quantified, the effect of the voter suppression in those states that flipped from Obama to Trump. I'm curious to know those numbers because when you add the voter suppression in those states to, um, to you know, whatever was done by Russian bots, and I mean, it's it's like mind blowing, but I'd really like to know the if if there's any way to quantify that number, what the effect was in those states. 
of the voter suppression. Thank you. I don't have those numbers on me, but I know that studies have been done. Um, and there was a study that particularly looked at Wisconsin because Wisconsin was so dramatic, um, where there were 60,000 fewer voters in Wisconsin um, from 2012 to 2016. And 68% of that came directly out of Milwaukee, where 70% of the state's black population lives. And that has to do with the issue of voter ID and moving voting uh, polling places, et cetera. Um, and there is another study that is also charting a, a range of different states and looking at the decline in black voter turnout. Is it easier under the law for states to get away with racially oriented voter suppression laws um, if they can argue that they're not racial, they're just political? I think this is part of the Texas story with uh, Greg Abbott, who's who's now the governor, arguing as attorney general to the Justice Department that his state's gerrymandering wasn't racially discriminatory. It was just meant to weaken Democratic votes in general, like that's okay. And, you know, and that was also the argument coming out of Wisconsin, um, because and what Wisconsin, as well as Greg Abbott, were arguing was that, you know, this is about party. This is partisan. This isn't racial. And partisan gerrymandering is okay, whereas racial gerrymandering is not, except that the parties are so different in terms of their demographics that it becomes synonymous so that almost 90 percent of the Republican Party is white. Whereas only 50-some percent of the Democratic Party is white. So that difference in the demographics then means that you can target saying you're doing it by party, but you're, also, you're actually doing racial targeting. Let's take a call of pushback, I think, from Leonardo and Yapank. Hello, Leonardo. You're on WNYC. Hey, can you hear me? Sure can. Okay. Um... My background uh, is kind of diverse, but part of it includes many years working for the Board of Elections. And I have to tell you that I have a big problem believing that anyone is trying to suppress minorities. And I'm going to tell you the primary reason why. The truth of the matter is minorities make up such a small number of the actual voters that it's hard to believe that anyone really would care whether or not they're voting. I have seen this year after year after year, and it's just, it happens all the time. And I'm gonna go slightly off track here and talk about the recent decision in New York to allow um, individuals who are on parole and or probation to vote. Um, and everyone is making a big stink about that. The truth of the matter is that over 98% of men who are incarcerated have never voted. So they're not gonna go out and vote. So. I I'm that believing mm -hmm. that anyone is targeting minorities. Leonardo, I'm going to leave it there because our time is short and get a response. Frankly, I think that's just naive. There's just so much history that proves it. It's so much history that proves that. The targeting particularly of African Americans but there's also the targeting of Latinos um, and it's well documented. It's, it's, it's um, North Carolina where the Fourth Circuit says that the state legislature targeted African Americans with nearly surgical precision. Um, one of the ways they did it with early voting. The way with the impact of that was that black voter turnout in early voting went down by 8.5%. That means a lot in North Carolina. And with respect to uh, probation and parole, 
there are pushes on both sides, right? So there are um, movements to try to expand uh, the numbers of voters um, um, who you know, might be disproportionately African-American. Unfortunately, we're talking about that population. Um, and, you know, I guess that's a push and pull over the years. After you've served your time for a crime, how long should you continue to lose your right to vote for? Right, because in Florida, you know, you have permanent felony disfranchisement. What that means is we have 6.2 million people in the United States who are disfranchised because of a felony conviction. In Florida, 1.6 million of them reside in Florida. That means that 40% of black men cannot vote in Florida. Almost 23% of black adults in Florida cannot vote. Now, they get counted in the census so that they get the Florida gets the kind of representation that they want in the House of Congress, in uh, the U.S. Congress, but they don't have the ability to vote. It's almost like the three-fifths rule again. And, and wiping out that kind of population can tip the scales in an election in Florida. Um, and in Florida, you know who was a resident of Florida when he was alive? And there's a story that I've told a few times when we talk about this topic because it brings it home for people who aren't usually engaged in this. The late owner of the Yankees, George Steinbrenner, was a resident of Florida, and he was convicted of a campaign finance felony with respect to illegal contributions to the Nixon campaign, and he lost his ability to vote. Wow. And Ronald Reagan pardoned him. And the reason Ronald Reagan pardoned George Steinbrenner for illegal campaign contributions to Richard Nixon was so that George Steinbrenner could vote again in the state of Florida. Boom. (laughs) Boom. (laughs) Adele in Forest Hills. You're on WNYC. Hello, Adele. Yeah, I I just have to say that sometimes I think it's pretty elitist. Everybody, everything these days is with the computer and the computer. Everybody doesn't have a computer. My computer happens to be down right now. I have to get a new one. The point of it is that everybody does not have a computer, and everything is .org, .org. You have to have a computer these days to really be able to participate, and I think that's very elitist. Well, thank you, but we don't have computer voting Yet, and I wonder how much, Professor Anderson, you think it's a good idea. I remember a few years ago, of course, now we're also disillusioned with the Internet and social media, which was going to be the great utopian leveler and community builder, and now we see the ways in which it does the opposite as well. Uh, But people are getting all excited a few years ago about voting from your computer or even your phone to increase voter turnout. Um, How much do you think that's, that's a dream that could ever come true, and would it be a good thing? I am not convinced that that is the way to go, partly because we still have a massive digital divide in America. And so by having the vote come through um, via computers, it, 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 it is a way of culling the electorate again to, to shunt out, shut out uh, so many of, of working class folk. Um, and we've got some places, I mean, when I'm, I looked at Alabama, Alabama was praising its digital, you know, or online voter registration. But over half of the counties in rural Alabama did not have access to the internet. So 
if the people don't have access to the internet, how are they supposed to register to vote? So we have to be really cognizant of, of thinking about technology as a panacea. One thing um, in the other direction, here in New York, where there's no early voting, we had the um, Attorney General Democratic primary candidates effort teach out the other day, and she was making a state's rights argument for allowing undocumented residents even to be able to vote in state elections, state citizenship, so that in you know, in her opinion, New York could set up its own voting rights if conservative, if Florida, et cetera, wanted to be conservative, let them do it. And in New York, maybe we could go so far as establishing residency for undocumented immigrants who've been here for long enough and are law-abiding, and even they could vote. Is this the... The future? Some states are already trying this, um, where um, those who are undocumented can vote in, say, municipal elections, um, but of course cannot vote in federal elections. Um, I mean, in the the key here is to build the kind of engagement in a democracy where people feel they have a stake in it. And that has to be the last word for today from Carol Anderson, author now of One Person, No Vote, How Voter Suppression is Destroying Our Democracy. And if you want to see her in person, she'll speak and sign books tonight at the Upper West Side Barnes & Noble on Broadway and 82nd Street at 7 o'clock tonight. Carol Anderson at the Upper West Side Barnes & Noble at 7 o'clock tonight. Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you so much, Brian. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Still tickets available. See some of you tomorrow morning in the green space for our live show, wnyc.org slash the green space if you want to come. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.